We've seen that to Peter is essentially Peter's call to all the churches, to Christians, to continue to progress in grace, to move forward in grace, to grow in grace. And remember, chapter 1 was a call to exercise great vigor in this, uh, to increase in all those graces of the Christian life through Christ, and that we have precious promises in God's word to help us in this. In chapter 2, we've seen how he tells us that we should continue to progress even though there are internal obstacles to that progress which the devil brings up within the church, namely false prophets, false teachers. That's one of the obstacles with which Satan tries to prevent our growth and even get us to go backwards if he could altogether right back to not being Christians if he could do that. And of course he can do that with those who are still not Christians, but are only uh, false Christians. And that's what the last bit of 2 Peter 2 is about. But also in chapter 3 we see how we're called to progress in grace, even from obstacles outside the church. Here is uh, the center of gravity, as it were, of chapter 3. In verses 3 and 4, we have perhaps the central uh, verses in terms of the teaching of this chapter. Uh, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Notice that word first. It means a first priority. Here is a first priority for all professing Christians that there is, uh, and the, the word of God makes clear that it knows this, it understands this, that there is this attack from outside the church. It could have been written uh, in this century, couldn't it? That uh, when you read that kind of statement about what is being said outside the church. It's almost as if Peter was living in the 21st century. So we see here, firstly, what the problem is, the major attack is on the church. In verse 3, we see it's not just from skeptics, from doubters, but it is also from scoffers. There's a slight difference in emphasis there. Charles Darwin, for example, was a skeptic. He was a doubter concerning the things of God's word. But he wasn't a scoffer. And in fact, he was really quite upset at the thought that uh, his particular theory of evolution might uh, be seen to undermine Christianity, even though he himself was not personally a converted man. But he was still upset at the thought, and he continued actually to subscribe to a missionary society, the South American Missionary Society, because he was so impressed by what work he'd seen them done amongst the natives in Terra del Fugo. No, he wasn't a scoffer, but we see today the fruit of the kinds of theories that he and others Uh, continue to propagate people like T.H. Huxley. Uh, The the kind of fruit is that we now are living in the days of scoffers, of mockers, who think the whole thing 
is something to be attacked head on. The whole matter of Christianity and the Bible. We're living in the fruition of this in today's secularists and today's libertarians who would seek to undermine every precious principle that the word of God teaches concerning the faith and concerning godly living. And we see here in these words, in verses 3 and 4, what is their key point? What's their big point, as it were? Their big point really is two things. The first is what's called uniformitarianism. Uh, That is, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Not that they talk about creation believing in it, but they are really, as it were, sitting in now, they're they're, they're looking at it from a Christian's point of view. You say there's a creation, and yet everything just continues exactly as before. And, of course, behind that we have um, the kind of thinking that's led to the idea that this universe has been in existence for billions of years and evolution has taken place simply by the process of time, an utterly unscientific uh, hypothesis, just time itself is some sort of driver to development of biological systems, uniformitarianism. And then we could say that there's also within this um, uh, statement, where is the promise of his coming? We have an anti-supernaturalism. Not only there's no such thing as any divine intervention, there's no such thing as anything other than what we see now, but there's also a total rejection of the idea of the supernatural. Where is the promise of his coming? You say this Jesus will come in the same way that he went. You say he came the first time the Son of God but now he's going to come again the second time in power and glory. There's absolutely no sign of it. You say it's coming soon. You say we should live in expectation of it, but there's absolutely no sign of it. And it's a rejection of, anti, of supernaturalism. It's a rejection, therefore, of catastrophism, the idea that God should have intervened in times past through catastrophes like the flood, the global flood, like the outpouring of his wrath upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And in other ways that that the Bible makes clear, he has from time to time, causing the sun to stand still as as, uh, Israel defeated her enemies. And it's a rejection of that. But not only do we see here the kind of attack that comes upon us and upon believers everywhere through world, worldly wisdom, but we also see the motivation of it. We're actually told about the motivation of those who speak like this and behave like this. We're told that they are walking after their own lusts. In other words, they have a vested interest in writing God out of the picture. Now, this is where we all were once. Let's not just take the view that, that, that they're incredibly sinful and we're incredibly righteous. No, no. This is what, a, a, what we're like. As we're born like this. And I need to say that because that's how we will understand what he's saying here about motivation. Remember in Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul this time reminds the believers that at one time they had their way of life 
in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So that word lusts, it means carnal appetites. It means godless appetites. But it's not just the appetites of the flesh, what the kind of things that uh, some tabloid newspapers were focusing in on and uh, with great glee and great delight. It's not those kinds of, just those kinds of things. Of course, it includes those things, but it includes the lusts of the mind. Any mind frame which seeks to leave God out and to place something else in command, whether it is evolution or whether it is some other great big philosophical idea or those things that absorb our minds and take us away from God, they may be very cultivated. They may be very high in that culture sense. They may be very low. They may... Uh, not be very highbrow, they may be very lowbrow, but if they're things that that, uh, feed our appetites mentally, emotionally, physically, and draw us away from God, then they are lusts. And that's exactly what he says. They, walking after their own lusts, they have a vested interest to keep him out of the picture. And that's where we all were, of course, in our motivation. So here's, here's where the attack's coming from. And we know it. Of course we know it. And we see the increasing pressure of this in our society as the devil begins to pick off Christians here and there in the name of different aspects of political correctness. And uh, there's just the beginnings of the same kinds of pressures that were manifest and widespread for example, under Stalinistic communism in the mid-20th century, which led to millions being deported into gulags and millions being slaughtered. That's just one example, of course, not just in Russia, but in many other places in the world. That's the problem. Now, what's the solution? Well, we could say that the solution is summed up in the words of Jesus, and they apply to what is being said in 2 Peter 3, where in another rather mocking attack on the idea of the supernatural by a group of people called the Sadducees who tried to rubbish the idea of the resurrection, Jesus responded to that saying, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. And that's the answer that's the solution. That's the protection against this attack. You do err because you don't know, firstly, the scriptures, and secondly, you don't know the power of God. In other words, in order to protect ourselves, we need to know, firstly, the scriptures and the power of God. That's really what he's saying here. He says, I want to stir up your minds. Come on, put on, uh, gird your loins, get going here, mentally speaking. Uh, you need to know, you need to be aware of what's been spoken by the Holy Prophets. You need to know your Old Testament. You need to know what the commandment of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior, are. You need to know your New Testament. Here's the answer. If all you ever do is read a psalm each day and a little bit of a gospel, you're not protected. You haven't got that prophylactic 
against this kind of scoffing attitude. You need to know all your Bible. You need to be soaked in what the word of God says, not soaked in the culture, in the drip, drip of the culture. And if you were soaked in your Bible, you would know you couldn't avoid the fact that there is an unambiguous supernaturalism and catastrophism in the word of God in terms of its description of what God has done in the past and will continue to do. And for, he takes as one example of this. This they willingly are ignorant of that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. He could have picked on any particular intervention of God on any particular judgment of God, but he's picked on this huge one of the global flood. And before that, he's picked on the whole matter of creation. The waters above the firmament and the waters below in the earth that were released at the time of the floods. We don't understand all the science of that because we weren't there. But we know from Genesis chapter 1 that God created it so. And we know from Genesis chapter 7 that God released these waters to bring about that global flood. And he takes us straight there and he says, you need to know this. You need to know this kind of thing. You need to take account of the fact that this is not something to feel apologetic about. It's not something to feel defensive over. It's not something to feel ashamed of. We have a supernatural God doing supernatural things. I love that, that section in 1 Timothy chapter 3 where he's, the Apostle Paul is describing our religion, the revelation of truth that we have in Christ. And he, he uses these words and many people think it was actually a fragment of an early Christian hymn. Well, we haven't the proof of that, but what a statement it is. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of our religion. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. There is, if you like, the summary of the whole Christian revelation, the whole Christian mystery that's now revealed And at every one of those points, the supernatural breaks through. God manifests in the flesh, the virgin birth, the virgin conception of Christ, justified in the spirit, the resurrection of Christ, seen of angels, whether at his birth or at his ascension, preached unto the Gentiles, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the Gentiles, believed on in the world, Received up into glory. It's just permeated with supernaturalism. That's why the, the, the various emphasis today, even within professing evangelical cir- circles of, of skepticism and doubt concerning the Genesis 1 to 11 and concerning aspects of the various miracles, we have to be so careful, brothers and sisters, not to be taken in by these things. We have to be giving ourselves the prophylactic of the word of God and to recognize it wouldn't be like that within the church. 
if it isn't like that out there, the scoffers and the mockers who continually deride us and say, where is your God? And you see how within this, this answer that the apostle gives us, that we've just got to make ourselves aware of this, we've got to stand fast on this and believe this. He also uh, brings to focus in our thinking the whole fact of the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. Uh, verse 7, uh, But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word kept in store, are reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now there are huge chunks of the Old and New Testament that teach this, that teach about the, 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 the end of the world, the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. Read the prophecy of Joel. Obviously a lot of that applies to Pentecost, but a lot of it applies to the end of the world, to the last judgment. Read again those great discourses of Christ at Olivet as he speaks about the end of the world. Listen to his words in Matthew 24 and verses 36 and following. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood... They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And then he goes on and says, Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. It's there in the teaching of Christ. It's there in the teaching of the apostles and in the teaching of the prophets. The end of the world, the second coming of Christ, the last judgment, the replacement of this old order, this old created order by a new created order, the melting of the one with a fervent heat, the burning up of it. Notice this repetition at that point uh, in verses 10 and 12 and the bringing in of a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Verse 13. I'd like to try and just make a few brief and simple applications of all of this teaching. The first is we mustn't be like those outside the church of Jesus Christ, willingly ignorant. But we must be informed and taught. And you notice he says willingly ignorant. There is such a thing as shutting your mind, shutting our minds to what we know is true but is very inconvenient and it is a fact that Jesus Christ is coming again at a time we do not expect, with power, with glory, with suddenness. 
to end everything and to bring this world to judgment. It's very inconvenient unless Jesus Christ is your Lord and Saviour. And we can so easily be ignorant of it. Mind you, God can break in on willing ignorance. came across recently a very amusing example of this. It was recorded in the Evangelical Magazine of 1796. One of the converts of a godly uh, Anglican minister called Thomas Hawes, who ministered in a place called Aldwinkle in North, Northamptonshire. And it says, among his converts was an old innkeeper who, having been a good customer to his own barrel, had carbuncled his nose to the sign of his calling. He was from nature and interest averse to the Methodists and could not see what all the world in his part had to run after at Old Winkle Church. Being fond of music, however, and hearing that the singing was admirable, he contrived at the next feast day to go six miles, avoid a drinking party, and squeeze himself into a pew somewhat narrow for his portly person, where he listened with delight to the hymns, but stopped his ears to the prayer. Heated and fatigued, he closed his eyes too, to the fly stinging his nose, he took his hands from the side of his head to punish the intruder. Just then the preacher, in a voice that sounded like thunder, gave out the text, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. The impression was irresistible. His hand no longer covered his organs of hearing. A new sense was wakened within. It was the beginning of days to him. No more swearing, no more drunkenness, but prayer and hearing occupied his time. And he died after 18 years walking with God, rejoicing in hope and blessing the instrument of his conversion. What an amazing story. Amazing story because it's so true. Here was someone literally trying to stop his ears to the truth, willingly ignorant. And of course, there's more than one way to stop your ears, isn't there? And yet God broke in upon it. God broke in upon him. Perhaps people were praying for him. Oh, how we should pray that God would disturb this willing ignorance that so grips our country, that he break in upon it. And how we should be sensitive to his leading, to, that we might be part of that breaking in. So that's the first point. We're up against willing ignorance, but God is able to overcome it. The second, as is Quite clear in the passage, we need to remember the power and sovereignty of God. I've been really trying to stress that, the supernaturalism of our great and eternal God. Notice this is one of the dominant thoughts in this section, that God is almighty, he's sovereign. For example, in verse 8, he's outside of time. Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And I've heard people tangle themselves up with this as they think about time and you know, try to apply this thought in a sort of strange way to some of these statements in the Old Testament. That's missing the point. The point is this, is time is God's creation. That's what he's saying. He's outside of time. He is eternal. He's had no beginning. He'll have no ending. There's never been a time when he has not been. 
The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's always been the Father. He's always been the Son. He's always been the Holy Spirit. He's always been one God. And time is his creation. He's not bound by it. He's not subject to it, so he has to change his mind if things go wrong. He's great. He's eternal. And therefore, no wonder that we see him in this passage as a God who is to be feared. He is the judge of all the earth. And the heavens are kept in store against the day of unjudgment and perdition of ungodly men. We must not dumb down on that. We must believe that. Teach that. But also, quite clearly, there's something else mentioned about God, something wonderful, amazing about our glorious God. Not only is he great and powerful and sovereign and holy, but he's also loving and patient. Verses 9 and 15. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And in verse 15, account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. And Paul says the same thing, Peter says. Even though at times Paul's writings are hard to understand, and notice that Peter calls them scriptures, because they're part of the word of God. So, yes, they may get angry, they may scoff, they may mock, They may attack, but brothers and sisters, we're to be like our God. We're to be like Christ, to be patient and loving when tempted to anger, frustration, impatience at the unreasonable unwillingness, the unwillingness and the willing ignorance. We're not to respond in kind. God give us patience to be like God. And then fourthly, We're to look for and to hasten to the coming of the day of God. Verse 12. Looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God. Or literally looking for and hastening the day of God. This is a verse that's often puzzled me. Obviously looking for isn't too difficult. Because we anticipate, we, we long for the coming of Christ. Why do we long for it? For his glory. Because he will be honored. And he will see the fruit of his soul's travail. And he will be delighted. So we're delighted for his sake. Why do we long for it? We long for our own sake. To be out of this world of sin and shame and sorrow. We long for it for the suffering world's sake. Because that will be the end of suffering. This groaning universe. But how do we hasten it? Because it's fixed in God's timing, is it not? And no man knows the exact day except the Father. How do we hasten the end? Well, I believe two ways. Firstly, by prayer. Thy kingdom come. That's the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. And we know that God answers prayer. We know that virtually everything he does in his universe, he does in response to the prayers of his people. And secondly, by preaching. So how does that hasten the kingdom? How does it hasten the kingdom when the gospel is preached? Well, Jesus 
tells us in his discourse at Olivet concerning the end of the world. He says, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. In other words, a process has to take place. The gospel should be preached to every kindred, every tribe, every nation. The elect must be called. And then the end shall come. And the faster that happens, the nearer will come the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's how we hasten it. By our prayers for preaching the gospel. By our prayers that God would raise up laborers for his harvest field. And by our prayers behind that ministry, that he will call out many to himself, we are actually hastening the coming of Jesus Christ. And then finally, as this passage finishes, we're not to lose sight of the ordinary graces of the Christian life. In a sense, this passage has been with huge themes, has it not? Themes concerning the flood, themes concerning the end of the world, themes concerning the huge enemies of the church uh, and and it's all sort of rather uh, makes us feel very very small very insignificant but notice where Peter ends his lesson but growing grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to him be glory both now and forever beware lest you be led away by the wickedness of these scoffers but growing grace. Don't lose sight in all of this with the ordinary graces of the Christian life. You're not to go around like wet hens, so worked up about the end of the world, so worked up and rushing around because of the ungodliness and and the attacks of, of the enemies of the church. No, you're just to be stable, solid. Ordinary Christians living out the Christ-likeness of the Christian life. That's what he's been saying in both his letters. Stirring up our pure minds by way of remembrance. Testifying to the true grace of God. That's what he's been doing. That's what he's urging us to. To give all diligence. Add to your faith virtue. To virtue knowledge. To knowledge temperance. To temperance patience. To patience godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. To brotherly kindness, charity. These are huge themes in chapter 3, but there is no quick fix for living out the Christian life other than following Christ daily, taking up our cross, rejoicing in him, growing in him, feeding on the milk, feeding on the meat, and growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And the glory for this will be his not ours.